Alex, 103 years ago, George Williams, the founder of the YMCA, died. Hey, when's the last time you went to a Y? Uh, not since the last time you made me do three hours of shoulder exercises, Nick. <laughs> I mean, my arms are still sore. Hey, shoulders like boulders, baby. <laughs> shoulders like boulders. <laughs> That was 11 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood, and I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Philippians chapter 3. Please go back and read Philippians chapter 3. Better yet, read chapters 1, 2, and 3. And if you go that far, might as well read the whole thing through chapter four won't take you very long and then come back and dive into the uh book with us and there is a lot of uh a lot of beef here a lot of meat in philippians chapter three and so we're gonna have to dive right in here yeah we are we are what do we have first nick well uh verse one uh paul talks about uh he says to write the same things to you is no trouble to me it's safe for you and that kind of, we wonder, did Paul write a previous letter to the Philippians? That's a good question, Nick. Uh, well, why don't you start us off? What, what do you think? You know, I think it, it seems like it. Um, I mean, it's, it's possible, but um, only one of those letters has made it down to us. Uh, three verse one here would be the internal evidence uh, for uh, this idea that there were other letters. So he's written something before. It had kind of the same or similar content to it. The external evidence, rather interesting, comes from uh, one of the early church writers. Uh, His name is Polycarp, and he wrote to the Philippians. Uh, By the way, Polycarp is a guy who knew a guy who wrote the books. Okay, He was was close with John, uh, the apostle. And so he wrote to the Philippians, and in his epistle, 3 verse 2 of his epistle, He talks about how the Apostle Paul, uh, when he was absent, he wrote you letters, plural. If you study them carefully, you will build yourselves up in the faith that has been given to you. So uh, my take on this is if this is the case, then the other letters that Paul wrote to the Philippians, they were Paul at his best, but they were just Paul. They are not inspired texts like what we have with the Philippians. Um, I believe we have all the books that we need, and there aren't any others that uh, we're, uh, we're going to find that, that have that inspired label to it. Of course, the other side of this, another reading of 3 verse 1, is simply that Paul is repeating himself concerning joy. And uh, he writes that here, Rejoice in the Lord, 3 verse 1. He's already talked about joy in chapter 1 verse 4, also verse 25, chapter 2 verse 2, also verse 29. That's a recurring theme in the epistle. So that's another way of looking at it. But uh, it is kind of intriguing that there could have been other letters. Alex, what do you think? Well, I agree that Paul definitely wrote more letters to the Philippians. Uh, He likely wrote more more letters to several congregations. I'm thinking of the Corinthians. You read 1 Corinthians. It sounds like they had correspondence before. Uh, The letter to the Laodiceans, which could possibly be the same letter that we have known as the Ephesian letter. But uh, if not, then that'd be another letter there. There are more cases like this. Uh, We don't have those letters, obviously. However, if we were to find some of those letters... Would it be inspired? Uh, Let's say, hypothetically, we found a huge cache of codexes, something like the Dead Sea Scrolls equivalent to the New Testament. Uh And let's say it turned out to be historically reliable. I think then those letters would indeed be inspired, which means I think that those lost letters to us are nonetheless inspired. Now, is the Christian to panic? Oh, no, are we missing something important? Probably not. Think about it. The early Christians didn't have a New Testament. They were living in the New Testament. They were in it. Uh, They had the gospel, mostly by word of mouth, I mind you. Um, We have the gospel as well. More letters to the New Testament, if they were found, if they were reliable, I think would be great. And it might even change our minds on certain doctrines if we have more information to consider as we formulate our beliefs. But you know what it wouldn't change, Nick? It wouldn't change the gospel. That's right. The New Testament primarily consists of letters written to address certain problems 
in specific congregational settings. As we see, Paul says, I don't mind reminding you of what you already know. Peter says the same thing. So here's what we do as Christians today. We filter through the early church's mail the best we can in order to reproduce what we believe represents the teachings of the apostles, because it's those teachings which are authoritative for us today. So that's what I think. I think that he definitely wrote more letters to the Philippians. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, yeah, I have no issue with that. Uh, our difference is, of course, whether those are inspired or not. You say they are, right. I say right. probably not, but, uh, and that's okay. That's okay. Um, okay. I'll throw something else out there sure. for our audience. So there is an apostolic father called Clement, and there's two letters, first and second Clement. Right. Uh, they're probably not written by the same guy, but first Clement was actually written by the elders in Rome to the elders at Corinth. And that may have actually been written by a guy named Clement. And if it's the same Clement as the one Paul mentions in the New Testament, then this is somebody contemporary with the apostles. And at the end of First Clement, uh, it says that the uh, Corinthian elders are to consider the words of this letter as Holy Spirit inspired. It says it point blank. <laughs> and that copy of First Clement was found together in the back of our New Testament codexes that we use as our you know best evidence for the reliability of the New Testament. Yeah, I think Sinaiticus so, had it, yeah. Yeah, so that's one book that a lot of early Christians believed were Holy Spirit inspired because it says it was. Another one as uh, the Shepherd of Hermas was considered to be Holy Spirit inspired for a long time. So the New Testament books that we have right now that are Holy Spirit inspired were like the baseline. These were the ones that like were undisputed. And then there were some beyond the ones we have that were not completely unanimous, but still pretty highly held and for a long time thought to be inspired. So it'd be worth just reading those things and seeing what's in it. What do those things say? Can they help us at all? I like thinking about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, by the way, Clement, we'll run into him in the next chapter, chapter four, next time. So That's right. Well, Nick, uh, who, who are the dogs and evil workers and false circumcision of verse 2? Well, obviously those are Judaizer, Judaizer teachers. They um, were those who were saying you still have to uh, align yourself with the law in order to be saved, specifically regarding circumcision. That's my take on it. Uh, what do you think? Uh, no, I completely, I completely agree. You want to dig into any of the descriptions made there? Well, let's see. Uh, I think you have. Uh, I want to talk about a modern day component, but only after we've kind of walked through um, some the of text, these terms yeah, here. What the text says, and I know you've got some good information here about, okay. that, about those. Let's do that. So the term "dog" here uh, was a derogatory term used to speak about Gentiles, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So you can look at Psalm twenty-two, verse sixteen, verse twenty. Um, anybody who was a hostile enemy of Israel. Calling them a dog would be uh, an insult. It was seen as, because dogs were unclean animals, they were scavengers. And so to talk about Gentiles this way, especially enemies, it was emphasizing the fact that they are separate from God's covenant people. And so it would be quite the twist of the knife into the gut of these false teachers. Because uh, for Paul to, to call these Jews who are perverting the gospel, to call them dogs, that would have been shocking. <laughs> and also, uh, just as shocking, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 18, uses the term dog as a reference to male temple prostitutes, yeah. which is disgusting. So, New Testament allusions to uh, Gentiles being called dogs. You got the uh, Jews taking each other before Roman courts. Don't throw your pearls before swine. Give what is holy to the dogs, Matthew seven sixteen. Um, the faithful Canaanite woman who was tested when Jesus said, I got give the bread of the children to the, you know, to dogs. And the Canaanite woman says, yeah, but even the dogs wait by the table for the crumbs. And Jesus blesses her for that. Okay, let's move on to evil workers. The evil workers, I believe, reveals more than just a misguided or ignorant believer. These guys intentionally work out evil deeds. That's what this means. So I see these men as pseudo-Christian, not real Christian, not accidentally pseudo-Christian, not by accident, but by infiltration, careful planning, 
with the intention to fracture Christianity from the inside, to poison people's minds, and then to drag back out of these churches as many new Jewish proselytes as possible who are under their control. That's what I think evil workers unveils and the things that they are working out, what they want, what's their goal. And then this term false circumcision is actually just one word in the original language. It's the Greek katatome. And katatome means mutilation. He's calling these guys the mutilators. <laughs> it means cutting into pieces. The real word for circumcision, which is in the next verse, is peritome. But katatome means mutilation. So calling them the mutilators or the mutilation would have been another deep blow to the pride of these false teachers and really a mark of shame for those who followed them. So those are the uh, things that I pulled out from those terms. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Nick, uh, what are your thoughts connecting this to today? Yeah, so uh, my English standard actually says those who mutilate the flesh, actually translating that, that Greek term there, um, in, into what it literally is very graphic is, is the bottom line. And so as I was thinking about mutilators of the flesh, um, I think, I believe that there is a fanatical, um, religio political group whose cultic practices involve and include the mutilation of their reproductive organs under the guise of human rights and alternative lifestyles. Those who are sympathetic to that worldview, they assist these people in administering drugs that produce sterility, as well as other hormonal cocktails in order to transform an individual's body uh, by disfigurement and biological manipulation. Advocates of such practices, they promote a distorted view of human identity, and they have a perverted view of human sexuality. And I wonder, as I, as I was reading Paul here, I wonder, isn't this similar? Isn't this kind of the kind of useless cutting of the flesh uh, that we see today? Isn't this an extreme version of the flesh mutilation that Paul was talking about? And he so strongly condemns here, dogs. That was a derogatory term. Right. Uh, evildoers, very strong language. And then the actual... Not, not uh, the mutilation of the flesh, not a true circumcision, a false circumcision. It's just, you're just uselessly cutting your flesh. I think there are things here that we probably can carry across the bridge today as we look at um, the uh, things like transgenderism. Right. It's not a good thing. It's not a good practice uh, to encourage people in and to affirm them in. I think that's, that's very dangerous and, and dances very closely, if not on the same dance floor as those who mutilate the flesh. Well, Nick, let me uh, drop another thing in there too, just to reinforce where this path leads down to. In the ancient Near East, looking at the other gods and cultic systems that existed thousands of years ago, we're talking like, you know, two, 3,000 BC, stuff that was well and alive and thriving in the uh, neighborhoods around Israel. There was a goddess named Inyana, also called Ishtar or Ashtart, and her cultic group, her priesthood, uh, part of the priesthood ritual was for men to dress up as women and for women to dress up as men. If they ever found a baby that was born uh, as a hermaphrodite with bo both genitalia, that baby would then be groomed to become the high priest of that cult because the goal of that cultic system, the philosophy, was for everything to become one. And so they wanted to destroy and break down all distinctive barriers. That's interesting, the everything to become one. We, at least I've heard about, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot of talk about the singularity these days. Yep. And bringing everything together. Listen, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We just yep. relabel them and call them by different stuff. And so it's ancient it, pagan idolatry. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Rather deep. Yeah. Well, so, verse... <laughs> yeah, verse 3, If there, there's this false circumcision of verse 2. There's also this true circumcision. Paul says, we are the circumcision. Uh, how about this, Alex? How are these Christians the true circumcision? Yeah, it's just one word, again, in the original language. As opposed to katatome, it's pedatome, and it means circumcision. 
And so obviously these Judaizers are calling themselves the circumcision, but Paul says, no, 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 we're the circumcision. They're the mutilators. <laughs> and yeah. so uh, you can look at Romans 4, 9 through 12 to get an explanation of Abraham's circumcision as a sign and a seal of the righteousness that he had while uncircumcised. So he was declared righteous and then later circumcised. The Christian seal in the New Testament that would best parallel Old Testament circumcision, I believe, is the seal or like the signet mark, the impression, um, the stamp of the Holy Spirit upon the believer. I get this from Ephesians 1.13, uh, chapter 4, verse 30, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, and a similar idea in Revelation chapter 7, verse 2, which is a throwback to Ezekiel 9.4, where an angel is sent to seal the remnant of believers on their foreheads. It's a spiritual uh, mark done in the unseen realm. So I believe the seal for the Christian happens just like Abraham after righteousness has been imparted. It's a token for those who are the sons of God. That's Galatians 4, 6. It says, because you are sons of God already, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts that cries, Abba, Father. Now, anyone can become a son of God and thus then receive the sign or the token of the Spirit. How do you become a son of God? Back up to Galatians 3, 26 through 30, it says, if you're baptized by faith in Christ Jesus, regardless of who you are, uh, free, slave, Jew, Gentile, male, female, you then become an heir of Abraham, one of the sons of God clothed with Christ. And so I think in uh, Colossians, then, Paul makes baptism the antithesis of Old Testament circumcision, making a contrast at every single point. Old Testament circumcision, human hands. Bapt uh, baptism, divine hands. Old Testament circumcision, cuts away flesh. New Testament baptism, cuts away the body of flesh. That's the sin. Old Testament circumcision, it's a work of man. New Testament baptism it's a work of god so they're not the same and they're not a fulfillment of each other they're the antithesis and so one is baptized their sin is cut away they're clothed with christ they're adopted as sons of god and then the result that follows is that you are sealed by the holy spirit and that seal of the holy spirit is the parallel and fulfillment of old testament circumcision yeah, that you made a lot of good connections there. The Colossians passage, um, and I just want to read those two verses, 11 and 12 of uh, chapter 2 in Colossians. It says, In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the, fle the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, <clears throat> in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so you're right on the money. Believers in Christ, uh, those who put their faith in him, uh, and, and that culminates in what F. Lagarde Smith calls the believer's wedding ceremony and baptism, we are the true circumcision because we've undergone this uh, circumcision Paul's talking about here in Colossians. Without it, I don't think we can say that we are part of the true circumcision or have undergone this spiritual uh, circumcision done without hand, spiritual circumcision. And I can't say that we are the new Israel. Uh, Paul talks about that in Galatians 6, uh, verse 16. So, Yeah. I think the confusion there, Nick, is we do have some Christian groups who would say you can't talk about baptism in the New Testament in a way that's different from circumcision in the Old Testament. And since circumcision in the Old Testament was not for salvation, it was to show that you already are a covenant member, then baptism in the New Testament can't be for salvation. It's just to show that you're already a covenant member. And so I take, I take, a, uh, I disagree with that because <clears throat> the baptism of the New Testament is spoken of as a new birth. And it's that being birthed, again, that corresponds to the Old Testament birth of physical birth of a Hebrew child, of a child, uh, Israelite child. And that, that birth, that's when they're entered in the covenant and then later follows the sign of the covenant. So in the Old Testament, that was male circumcision. 
that sign in the New Testament is the Holy Spirit spiritually sealing them and marking them in the heavenly realms. And so um, there's and I that. think that's that's a good distinction yeah. to make. Um, and especially like the word there, the antithesis of the Old Testament circumcision. I think that's that's a good distinction to make. Well, Nick, what does it mean uh, then in verse 3? Because this is, again, more of that description of the true circumcision, the Christian. What does it mean then to worship in the Spirit of God? Because that's what the true Christian does. Right. Worship here uh, is not your typical word for worship. It is connected to worship in the original language, but it should probably read something like serving. It denotes that Christians render uh, religious service uh, to God. Um, There is actually a a textual variant here in some manuscripts. Some manuscripts read God in the Spirit. That's why the New King James reads the way it does. But uh, the best manuscripts have... um, by or in the Spirit of God. And some commentators actually suggest that this phrase probably should be rendered as serving God's Spirit, that we actually render this religious service to uh, the Spirit of God, which is a a fascinating concept, especially when we... A lot of people wonder about, you know, the, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We worship one God, you know, we can worship the Father, we can worship the Son. A lot of people have a lot of confusion about, can we worship the Spirit? And I think here is a powerful connection to make where, yes, we can offer religious service, even worship to the Spirit of God. He's God after all. So, uh, but that's that's my read of this. What say you? Yeah, it's always difficult to always figure out what does the word Spirit mean in any given context. Um what came to my mind was Jesus's encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter four. Although uh, here, like you said, I appreciate you bringing out that Greek word, uh, latruo. In John four, the Greek word for worship there is proskuneo. And so latruo is more like service. Proskuneo is more like uh, the like like an official worship, like bowing down ritual type thing. So in John four, when Jesus says true worshipers are going to worship in spirit and truth, I believe that phrase is meant to indicate the new location of worship and the new type of building materials that our location is made out of. So the new temple is not going to be a mountain of rock like in Samaria. It's not going to be a temple of stone like in Jerusalem, especially since it was destroyed. Um, it's going to be new a new location, new type of building materials, which means it's not going to be a doctrine either. Or a ritual. So if you're in Christ, you're in his body, which is the new temple, and it's made out of spirit and truth. That's its building materials. If you're a Christian, then all worship is going to be in spirit and truth because that's the location of our worship and service to God. Uh, That worship is translated to the heavenly realms. That's where it's um, counted and accepted as true worship. So that's, that's my thought about worshiping in the spirit, Nick. It's good stuff. All right. (laughs) Well, what does Paul mean in verse 3 by the flesh? Because uh, sometimes the flesh is hard to figure out. What does he mean by flesh? No confidence in the flesh. Yeah. So sometimes sometimes Paul's use of that word flesh is very nuanced, especially when you read like Romans chapter 8 and just how he's using it there. But a lot of the time... Um, it simply refers to uh, our flesh and blood and is sometimes synonymous with body, uh, which is a different word in the original language. Um, for example, just staying in the book of Philippians, if you look back at chapter 1, verses 20 and 22, he talks about how it, he has an eager expectation a hope that he will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And just a couple of verses later, verse 22, he says, if I am to live in the flesh. And so you can see here the synonymous use of body and flesh there, even as in this epistle. So I believe that's the way that Paul is using that term flesh in Philippians overall, is just as as a synonym with body, in which case, then, um, putting no confidence in the flesh is related to the practice of circumcision, the, 
the kind of circumcision that the Judaizers are demanding. You cannot be saved unless you have been circumcised in the flesh. And so Paul says, not so fast. <laughs> right. uh, that's, that's not it at all. You guys are way off base here, and we've already talked about what the true circumcision is. So uh, that's, that's what I see here with that term flesh. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's right. It's, the term is context-driven, and uh, I think you brought out the context well. It has to do with his, his body. Uh, I think ethnicity maybe is another way you could say it in this case. Uh, that might be uh, what he has in mind, uh, especially with what follows. Um, so in verse 6, Paul, as he's listing off his uh, credentials that would be impressive to the Judaizer, right. uh, he says that he himself was found blameless under the law. Uh, does, this, does this mean sinless, Nick? What does it mean to be found blameless under the law? Well, one way, which seems to be the way Paul is speaking of it here, is no charge can be brought against him pertaining to his obedience and his conformity to uh, the law of God. That uh, That's what it means to be blameless. No charge can be brought against him because he was righteous under the, under the law, and we're going to talk about what that means here in a little bit. But... Um, and where Paul is in and up, though, where he's going to lead to is, of course, the only real way to be blameless, to be sinless, to be free from sin is through Christ. Uh, and so uh, you kind of have the the two ends here of this spectrum where he's making the case for all of his credentials, but where he's going to end up is, well, actually, it's only through Christ that I can really be this uh, blameless, sinless guy. Um, so that's that's my read of it. What do you say? Sure. Yeah, I think that's right. And in the Old Testament, as long as the crime didn't result in capital punishment, like if you were caught in idolatry, uh, the sacrificial system did provide atonement. However, that atonement was provided on the basis of faith. So since animal blood doesn't actually atone, and people caught on to this in the Old Testament too, they knew that. And so they had believed that God would justify them somehow. They didn't know how, but just that somehow he would do it, that it was by grace, that it was through their faith. And the answer to that how is what we have now in Christ Jesus. Christ is how he was able to do that. So under every age, in every covenant, there was only one way to be righteous and thus be saved, and that was to live by faith. And how God required one's faith to be pledged to him or to be manifested, it looked different in each age. And if you uh, want more examples of that, go read Hebrews chapter 11. Well, Nick, what does it mean in verse 8 and verse 10 to know Christ? Paul says he wants to know Christ. Um, in verse 8, he says he knows Christ, then knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Verse 10, he wants to know Christ. What does this mean, Nick? Yeah, this is, uh, <clears throat> this is what it's all about, right? This is what this is. After Paul has listed his litany of credentials, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew, Hebrews, Pharisee, persecutor of the church with the, when it came to zeal, blameless under the law, what he ends up with is, look, the only thing that matters, the only thing that's worth anything is knowing Christ Jesus. The word for knowing there, we actually get our, uh, our English word like Gnosticism, okay, Gnostic, and so, and really all it has to do here uh, with is, uh, it's more than just head knowledge. Um, it has to do with heart knowledge that's based on experience, based on fellowship uh, with Christ. I think that's what's at the root here of knowing Christ Jesus. Not just knowing about, but actually experiencing him through this heart knowledge. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Another component here is that Paul now knows the basis for God's justification upon man and the imparting of righteousness. And this knowledge brings clarity, it brings joy, it brings hope. And so we now know, verse 8, uh, but we also will know at a deeper level later on. That's kind of verse 10, that's what I took away there. It's interesting, First Peter 1 Peter 1.8 says, We have not seen him, talking about Jesus nor do we even see him right now, but we love him, and it fills us with inexpressible joy. If that's the way the Christian feels now, how much more then when we know Christ in the resurrection? And that's a joyful thing. 
and that will yeah. be an experience uh, uh, of all experiences. Nick, verse 8, Paul mm-hmm. calls all of this stuff his old uh, record of accolades. He calls it rubbish. Now, what does that mean? What's rubbish? Was the law that he was talking about, was it bad? So I'll, I'll tackle the rubbish thing, and I'll leave the law to you. All right. Um, <laughs> the word here for rubbish just means garbage. Um, the King James Version has dung, and so that's a. I think that gives you a pretty strong idea of what Paul is saying here. This is the rubbish. This is garbage. It's the dumpster, okay? That's what he considered his, his uh, credentials. Some here read a slang term perhaps even a vulgar term, <clears throat> comparable to our uh, S-word. I'm not convinced, though, that Paul would use profanity to make a point here. Oh, snap. Yeah, that's 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 <laughs> where I land with this. So, um, yeah, not that S-word, different one. Um, <laughs> so, but here's the point. Paul is saying not only uh, is he talking about his Jewish heritage and all those accolades and the credentials and all that, Anything that he might claim as valuable religiously are nothing but a stinking mess. They're nothing but filthy garbage. And the purpose of this strong renunciation of of everything is that Paul understands that to lose all means you gain Christ, and he is willing to lose everything, count everything as loss, so that he might gain Christ. And that's, that's a powerful powerful principle for us today, something we can carry across the bridge uh, for us today. So then, Alex, what about the law? Was it bad? Oh, you know, your mentioning of garbage made me think of something. You know who loves garbage? Dogs. Uh, I was going to say uh, <laughs> Oscar on Sesame Street. <laughs> Oscar but... the Grouch. Dogs, <laughs> pigs, yeah. rats. Very interesting. Still poking at these guys. That's um, right. <laughs> I think the law... Is not, it wasn't bad. In fact, Paul says, Romans 7, 12, the law is good. That's right. First Timothy 1, 8 clarifies, but only if used lawfully. He goes through and lists all of these types of sins. He says the law is to reveal lawlessness. It's to hold up that mirror in front of our face and say, hey, you need help. And so the ultimate answer, we need Christ. And if you have Christ... Who cares about the accolades earned under the law? The law of Christ offers a superior reward. And we'll get more into that here in a few verses. And so giving up everything, selling everything in order to upgrade is a good deal. It was a good deal. It was a good deal. Yeah. Um, how about verse 9 here? Let's, uh, there's this phrase here, Paul wants to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Alex could... Could a person be righteous under the law? Yeah, this is going to be a very nuanced answer, so pay close attention. All right. One could be righteous under the law, but it would not be through law-keeping. So let me say that again. One could be righteous under the law, but it would not be through that one's law-keeping. It would be through faith exercised towards God, who would then credit you with righteousness on the basis of what he knew he would eventually accomplish through Christ. If you don't believe me, read Hebrews chapter 11. Everybody everybody in that chapter is before Christ. So this, however, would not stop certain people, like these enemies here in this letter, it would not stop them from thinking that they could derive a righteousness through the law as opposed to under the law by faith. So Paul's opponents, I think, would have thought this. And guess what? These opponents who think they can derive their own righteousness through the law, Paul could out-Jew these guys all day, every day, 24-7, 365, up and down the street. Paul could out-Janoover. That's a new word I made up. Out, <laughs> he could out-Janoover these guys at every turn. They were not more righteous than he was under the law or through the law and paul says and guess what it's all worthless if it's not by faith and even worse than worthless if not by faith in christ after hearing the gospel after seeing the fulfillment of what the law wanted to bring you to 
you know, I, I like the distinction there, and I, I think you're right on the money because even <clears throat> even under the Old Testament, you have the principle in Habakkuk, right? Right. The the just shall live by faith, which is one of the most quoted Old Testament texts in the New Testament. You right. mentioned Hebrews 11. Um, that Habakkuk 2 passage, if I'm not mistaken, is quoted at the end of chapter 10. And so he builds his case for the just shall live by faith, Um into Hebrews chapter 11 there. So uh, that's that's good stuff. Well, Nick, how did Paul conform to Christ's death? This is verse 10. The So here's a little technical stuff. Don't get lost in the language here, folks. But um, the, uh, the idea here, the, the term that's used is a, pa- a present passive participle. And all I want, I just want to bring that up so that you can understand, first, it's continual. That's the present tense aspect of this. And it's progressive. I think that's related to the present tense as well. Uh, Also, the participle part here. Um, This progressive, deep, real inner conformity. That's what he's talking about here uh, to Christ in verse 10 of of becoming like him in his death. how does he do that? Well, it's by a daily self-death, uh, I believe. And this is echoing <clears throat> Jesus in Luke chapter 9 about you need to take up your cross daily. The cross was an instrument of death. Right. Uh, uh, also, Galatians 2 and verse 20, um, I want to know Christ and the power of his rising. Share. No, that's, uh, that's right here in Philippians 3. The Galatians 2.20 is, I've been crucified with Christ. There it is. Nevertheless, I live. Not yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So I think that's what he's talking about here is this daily self-death and the, the present nature of this. He's passive in that this is something God does to him. Uh, and so uh, I, I think that's what he's getting at here. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think that's right. And you have this present continual process that had to start at some point. And I mm-hmm. think that Paul teaches the beginning of it starts in baptism. You go to Romans right. chapter 6, and you cannot get around that Romans 6 says, whatever you believe about baptism, that is the beginning and conforming to the death of Christ. And you are raised up to walk in newness of life. And so that walking in newness of life is the continual progressive act of conforming to his death that began in baptism, which was an act of faith so that the work of God could be performed upon you to remove your sin. It's continued then through obedience and suffering. Paul bore the brand marks of Jesus Christ on his body, Galatians six seventeen. You couldn't question that he was going to suffer willingly and joyfully at every turn in his life for the cause of Christ. Yeah. So let's talk about verse 12 here. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Uh, so he's clarifying this for the original audience here. Why in the world would Paul have to clarify he hasn't already attained to the resurrection? Alex, wouldn't that be obvious? Yeah, that's a good question. I have a couple of possibilities. They both could be wrong, but here they are. Okay. I think Paul may have had to clarify in light of certain people falsely saying that the resurrection had already taken place. We covered this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18. Right. So that would then require whoever these people are it would require them to give a different definition of the resurrection because it would be obvious that dead people are still dead. (laughs) So whatever that was, whatever was going on, it had to require a redefining of certain terms. Uh, So that might be what's going on. A second possibility is that not the resurrection per se when Jesus comes back, but this attaining to the resurrection and the idea that our bodies will be transformed, we'll see that in verse 21, Paul could be referring to this transformation process of his body. Uh, At times in other podcasts, we've called this process theosis. Now, Paul might be saying, look, guys, I'm not like Moses yet. I don't have a shiny face, okay? Uh, I haven't been whisked up to heaven like Enoch or Elijah. I am working out of my salvation just like all of you are, and I'll die like Christ, and so will you. So I... I think maybe that's more what he has in mind, just saying that, like, I'm working on that inner transformation still. Uh, I haven't received the outward transformation yet. None of us have. We'll get there eventually together, though. I think that's what he says. And I think both of those are, are viable options. Um, 
So what I want to do is just carry some of this across the bridge for us today. And I want us to note that spiritual growth must never stagnate. Someone has said if we're coasting, we're probably heading downhill, all right? Um, If there was room for the Apostle Paul to grow, there's room for us to grow as well, spiritually speaking. We're not home yet. That's right. So we need to keep pressing on in order to know Christ, just like Paul did, uh, just like he did. So Paul's pressing on, and he said he presses on for what lies ahead, for the goal. So, Nick, what is what what lies ahead then? What is the goal? Uh, and for me, I believe this is connected to the the prize as well. We'll talk about that in uh, a little, little more detail in uh, in a moment. But I think what he is striving for, uh, he's named in verse eleven, and that is the resurrection of the dead and the eternal blessedness of heaven and all that. Um, he calls this an upward call uh, into the heavens. It's a heavenly calling, says the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 3 verse 1. Um, and notice that it's God who calls Paul in and by Christ Jesus. Right. Um, so I think all that is, is related to this resurrection of the dead and the call home, uh, the call toward uh, heaven someday. And and listen, it shouldn't be understood that this is disconnected from his present practice. In fact, all of that informs his present practice. So right. uh, that's that's my take on it. What say you? Yeah, I agree. He, what lies ahead? What's the goal? It's the resurrection. It's to be raised from the dead. Now, what's the prize, Nick? This is in verse 14. Let's unpack this a little bit more. Is that different than a gift or... Uh, you you said what is meant by upward uh your your take on that am i hearing this right upward is the source from which the calling is coming from is that what you're saying i think so yeah okay. and I, th- I i think for me the the prize the goal um those are those are all the same thing the the destination and what you get there um i guess if i would add anything uh what do we get there we get god we get to be with him. We get to be with Christ. We get to uh, faith becomes sight. All those different things. Right, right. Um, what about you? What do you think? Well, I think if the goal is the resurrection, right? If this is the goal line, the finish line, you have crossed through the unseen realm, right? You have made it to the resurrection. Uh, then I think the prize, you know, the medal that they hang around your neck or the wreath that they put upon your head, I think the prize is our new body. So the goal is the resurrection, and the prize of the resurrection is our new body. Um, Salvation is not the prize, because salvation is a gift. That's something different. That's not really what Paul has in mind here. So the upward calling then, uh, in this context, here's the way I see it. The upward calling could very well be the calling that we have received to be given a heavenly body. We've been called to shed this body, this earthly body human body and to put on divine bodies so uh that's again this this old conversation that uh, we've been missing out on for a couple thousand years called theosis right nick (laughs) yeah and there's a very rich history of that in the eastern branch of the church but uh that's for another time because i believe this is going to bring us to our tough text tough text for today what's our tough text uh so it's in verse 15 where Paul talks about being perfect, or my English standard talks about mature. Those of you who are mature, those of you who are perfect. So uh, our tough text has to do with um, how are some perfect when Paul himself, as he admits in verse 12, is not perfect? That's Mm. a good question. So verse 12, verse 15, uh, how do you reconcile those verses, Nick? What do you think? Well... When Paul, he, so for, first of all, let's dismiss the idea that he's using different words. He doesn't. He uses the same word in 12 and also 15. Right. Uh, so when he speaks of perfection here, he's obviously not saying that he's absolutely perfect as God is absolutely perfect. Um, that reference to the resurrection of the dead in verse 11 hints at the fact that Paul, he looks forward to absolute perfection in the future someday uh, when he sheds this body, puts on the new body as you were talking about. 
Um, but uh, right now in the flesh, he's not yet attained that. Um, I think it's similar to uh, what Paul talks about in and how he describes the Corinthian brethren in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, how they're sanctified, they are saints, even though they have gross immorality and sinfulness taking place in the church. There's a lot of sinful practices that he has to walk through and say, listen, guys, the gospel informs this stuff. Um, So although their ethical practice needed correction, in principle, they were holy. They were set apart unto God. And so that's one way that I think we can approach this uh, perfection idea. And I think that's why the English Standard translates the way that they do, making a distinction uh, given the context. So there is Christian maturity that we are pressing onto and we can attain in one degree or another, but we're not yet perfect in that we are um, absolutely perfect like God. Um, That's still a future prospect. So there's a now, not yet thing. Another way of understanding this and how Paul uses this, uh, this word in the original and how he's talking about perfection here is to connect it with what he says over in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 20, where he talks about those who are uh, in your thinking, you are to be mature. And so this has to do with, again, spiritual maturity and a readiness to apprehend things that come from God. And so uh, that those are, again, a couple ways of looking at and making a distinction here about well, what's he talking about here? He says he's not perfect, but Yet he's talking about those talking to those who are perfect. Well, um, again, a couple ways of looking at that. Sure. Well, uh, I'm gonna throw one more into the mix here. Yeah, go for it. So, yeah, you're totally right. There's there's the same word being used in both verse 12 and verse 15. And so, um, another possibility is that Paul may be strategically using that same word in two different ways in order to form a theological connection. So the first way in verse 12 uses the word perfect, I think, to talk about completion. So we have not yet received the completion of our transformation regarding the resurrection body. But the second way he uses the word perfect in verse 15 is to talk about maturity. And so the spiritually mature Christian is a humble servant and a good example for the church. So in other words, Nick, the mature Christian lives in a way that anticipates the resurrection. In other words, they have an inward perfection that is anticipating and continuing to work towards the outward perfection that we get clothed with in our new transformed resurrected bodies. So one thing I'll also stress here, it's something our old pal Hank Hanegraaff would regularly say in his uh, radio program, is that words are not univocal, they're equivocal. And so they... In other words, they don't always mean the same thing always, no matter how they're used. Right. But they, 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 get, they take their meaning based on context. And that's, that's an important distinction to make here, especially if we're going to understand. He's not, Paul's not contradicting himself. It's not that he can't keep a coherent thought for more than a few verses. Right? Um, he knows what he's saying. He's a smart, smart cat. And I think um, that's another good way of looking at it, that he intentionally uses... The same word, but to make different points in these different verses. Well, Nick, in verse 17, we are going to come upon the pattern. The, oh, yeah. The pattern. So what is the pattern that Paul refers to in verse 17? It better be your systematic theology, Nick, unpacking. That's, <laughs> so uh, join and imitate me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the, I believe, your translation says pattern. Mine says example. Um, so, uh, I know the question is phrased, what is the pattern? It might better be, for, uh, better, for, it might be better phrased, there it is, as who is the pattern? Ah. Who is the example? Um, the example, uh, is, um, uh, again, who could be Paul, could, for the Philippians, could be Paul, could be Timothy, could be Epaphroditus. Uh, again, contextually speaking, any of those seem like good options. Right. Um, he's talking about you have uh, you have this example in us. So um, it could be in a general way of speaking. It could be Paul talking about the whole apostolic college. That might be a stretch, though, 
um, since this is such a, a personal letter from Paul. Um, what about, what do you think? I'm going to try to uh, bring in something from the whole letter because there are two things that keep popping up in every chapter. That's rejoicing and suffering and the connection between the two. So I think the pattern is the pattern of suffering and rejoicing. I think about chapter 1, verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. I'm thinking about chapter 2, verses uh, 17 and 18. It says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Then chapter 3, verse 8, More than that, I count all the things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them both rubbish so that I may gain Christ. I think it's the pattern of suffering and rejoicing that is perhaps in mind here as he reemphasizes this thread chapter by chapter. So Nick, verse 18, he says that there are these enemies of Christ. He weeps. Now, who are the enemies and why would Paul weep for them? Yeah, many... Many walk as enemies of the cross, he says. And there's no... um, He doesn't really give that much detail on them. Uh, Very little is said about their manner of life. And they obviously tread an unchristian path. That's evident by their conduct. Um, They've given themselves over to evil passions. They're evading the obligations of Christ's death. And what that lays upon them concerning holiness, they're hostile to the cause of Christ, um, even though they might move around in Christian circles, which is interesting. Uh, So uh, who exactly they are, uh, maybe you can pin it down more definitively for us, but I I think it's just kind of a general statement that he's using here uh, for those who are opposed to the cause of Christ. Now, the tears, I like what uh, the early church writer Chrysostom says about this. He says, um, talking about Paul, so true is his sympathy, so deep his care for all men, even for those who are his enemies. Yeah, even for those who are his enemies. He uh, he sheds tears for them as well. He wants everybody to be saved. And what a, what a noble and um, lofty goal uh, for even us to attain. All right. Well, I think that's definitely possible, Nick. I'm going to take a different course here, and I'm going to say that I think the enemies here, the opponents, are the specific uh, opponents mentioned in chapter 1, verse 28, which are the same ones mentioned in chapter 3, verse 2, the dogs, the evil workers, mm. the mutilators. And if it if it is this group, these specific people, I don't think Paul is weeping for them because it doesn't necessarily say that in verse... 18 for many sure. walk of whom I often told you now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So it doesn't say he's weeping for them necessarily, although that's right. possible. Right. So I think the tears that he's weeping are for their victims. It's for the ones who have been deceived. It's for the damage left upon the church in their wake of corruption. I think those are the tears. It's for the victims, not the victimizers. Uh, it's for the deceived, not the deceivers. And uh, that's that's kind of my take is is Paul hates to see the church uh, fractured or hurt in any way, especially by guys who came in intentionally to do it. Well, uh, these guys are going to be destroyed, Nick. And right. verse 19, what is that destruction that awaits them? What destruction is Paul talking about? Yeah, their end is destruction. I've shared before that... Uh, I wrote a thesis for my master's degree, and it was on the subject of hell, and so I've pulled that out here. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, what I see here, this is Paul uh, specifically talking about hell. That's the destination of those who are enemies of the cross. Um, the destiny of these many enemies uh, is destruction. They are cut off from salvation in Christ. Um, specifically as to the word itself, uh, it does mean the eternal, the loss of eternal life. Um, and that means that you go away to eternal misery and the second death. Um, 
the word itself, it was the kind of utter destruction or ruination that would happen to a sunken ship. Uh, so just just decay and deterioration, uh, in this case, for eternity, because that's how it's categorically described in the New Testament. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think uh, we should put a Dropbox links for uh, a Dropbox link to for your paper so that people could read your thesis. So, sure, for a nominal fee. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to. Uh, yeah, we'll set up your Patreon account later. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the Greek word here is apoleia, and this is uh, it means destruction. It means death. It means annihilation. It can mean ruin. These are different uh, possibilities. I remember in, when we went over Second Peter, Peter liked using this word. Yeah. Um, I think he pref- Peter preferred the word phthora when speaking about the decomposing of the soul in the afterlife, uh, that hell scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder if in this case, the uh, apoliah, the word being used there for destruction, is more about temporal destruction. So if these are Judaizers and if those are the enemies, then how would they be destroyed? Well, I think they were destroyed pretty thoroughly in the war campaign uh, that Rome led against them from uh, AD 67 to AD 70, culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem. So that might be the destruction in mind here, but it's it's not necessarily that way because, uh, like you said before, just because one Greek word is used a certain way in another letter doesn't mean it's always used that way in every letter. Right. So another possibility there, two types of destructions uh, to always consider, destruction in this life, destruction in the life to come. Nick, verse 20, Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven. Now, here's the idea. It says we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He connects that to the citizenship idea. Nick, how is our citizenship in heaven, and are we waiting for Christ or is Christ waiting for us? In other words, uh, are we are we gonna are we waiting to go be with Christ in heaven, or is are we waiting for Christ to come down and bring heaven to us? Hmm. So, one thing that again, and not to get too technical here, but he says our citizenship is in heaven. That's a present tense thing. It's a reality. That's right. Okay. It exists there now. But even now, we are enjoying the benefits of being kingdom citizens. And we are. Christians are citizens of a kingdom that's not of this world. Yes. That's how Jesus describes it, John 18, verse 36. Um, our citizenship is above. It's heavenly. And that requires a certain kind of behavior, which he's already talked about back in chapter 1 and verse 27. It says, let your, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And uh, that kind of lifestyle stands in contrast with those who have their minds set on earthly things, just as he talks about here in verse 19 of chapter 3. So very different lifestyle. uh, My take on heaven is that we are looking forward to this imperial city of Christ. This earth will go out of business. Um, and it will give way to the spiritual reality, which is heaven. So if I were to fall on a certain side on this question, I believe we go be with him, that he doesn't come down here and reform and reshape the earth or anything like that. I think this earth goes out of business. Jesus himself says heaven and earth will pass away. Uh, So that's my take. What say you? Right. I think your citizenship idea is on the money. I, uh, agree it's a present thing we have citizenship now it's almost like being in a foreign country but uh you have your your u.s passport you have your citizenship in the united states even though you are not in the united states at the time and who knows how long it'll take you to get back right so i think that is the idea we have our passport to the heavenly realms to the kingdom of christ but uh we are enjoying the benefits to a degree, but we are not yet there. We are uh, pilgrims. We're strangers. We're sojourners on this earth, waiting for a better earth, a better city, the uh, 
Imperial City of Christ. I actually, I really like that. It makes me think, is it going to be Christopolis? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm a citizen of Christopolis. Uh, now, as far as, is Christ waiting for us or are we waiting for Christ? I bring this back to Acts chapter 1, verse 11. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the apostles are sitting there looking at the clouds, and an angel comes by and says, what are you guys doing? Uh, he'll come back. And it'll be in the same way you just saw him leave. Right. And so is this um, is this something they thought would be, you know, the temporal cloud coming judgment? I don't think so, even though that's a, that is a way of talking about uh, earthly judgments coming in the clouds. I think they are talking about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel because that's what they wanted to know in verses uh, 6 and 7. And Jesus said, it's not, it's not for you to know the times. <laughs> and so... Um, the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. We uh, already saw earlier that the church is Israel. The church doesn't replace Israel. The church is Israel. We have been right. grafted into the tree known as Israel. So uh, true Israel belongs to those who accept Christ, who accept Jesus as the Christ. So uh, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I believe earth is um, in this process of discipling all nations spreading the kingdom through the gospel and uh, adding more people to the temple which is global and so jesus i believe will come back with heaven and will uh everything will unfold you know and it just depends on your eschatology but i think um we're not waiting to go be with christ in heaven i think we're waiting for christ to bring heaven down to earth so it can be global eden once again and there's a lot of uh now but not yet stuff going on so that's my that's my take, but uh, don't be confused. I am not a dispensationalist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm a yeah. I'm a different type. I don't know what my label is, but it's not dispensationalism. Whatever you say, Tim LaHaye Jr. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Easy there, easy there. <laughs> yeah. All right, Nick. Verse twenty one. Our transformed right. bodies. Um, what is that going to look like? What will the transformation of our bodies be? Yeah, transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Um, this current body, flesh and blood body that we have now, will be changed to be like the body of his glory. Um, <clears throat> and so I believe this refers to the fact it'll be immortal, it'll be spiritual, uh, it'll be heavenly, indestructible, It'll be undying. All right, all these different things uh, will be part of this new glorious body. Um, whether we are dead or alive at the time when Jesus comes back, Paul says in another letter, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one, we shall all be changed. That's going to happen. Uh, so this new body will be suitable for life in the afterlife. And it'll be suitable to associate with Christ in his glory and to be with him forever. So certainly uh, a wonderful prospect to anticipate and look forward to uh, one day. What do you say? Yeah, I think that's right. All of those things, are, uh, I think, are, are factual and accurate. Immortal, spiritual, heavenly, indestructible, undying body. Uh, some references for people to go and back and look at. I've mentioned several times, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 41 and 42, and that whole context, that wider context about sun, moon, and stars, stock language for divine beings in the Old Testament, and the differing degrees of glory. And notice how he says, will be like Christ's glory. So glory is another way of talking about a heavenly body, a divine uh, being, divine material stuff. And so we're not all going to have the same type of body. It'll be different degrees, varying degrees of glory, and it'll probably be dished out based on uh, what we did here in this body. Second Peter 1 Peter 1.4 says we'll become partakers of the divine nature. Verse 14, talking about these guys who now have these shiny divine bodies, like Moses and Elijah, who appeared with Jesus in the transfiguration. That's Second Peter. And also Luke chapter 20, verse 36, Jesus saying we'll be made like the angels. And if you ever go through and look at descriptions of angels from uh, Old Testament to New Testament, they're not all the same descriptions, right? There are different classes of angels, different statuses, uh, different descriptions, but they're always pretty powerful uh, 
the think of Ezekiel where, or the uh, in Deuteronomy in Exodus when God comes down on Mount Sinai, angels are described as flashes of lightning. Uh, angels are described as uh, flames of fire. Uh, they're described as winds, and they move back and forth uh, with great speed and intensity. And so these are powerful divine beings, and this is the type of body we'll have in the resurrection. For anybody who's seen Dragon Ball Z, we're going Super Saiyan. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> we're, we're going Super Saiyan. So uh, it's it's really it's exciting to think about. It's exciting to think about. Well, Nick, I think that does it for this episode. Any other thoughts from you? Uh, no, I think we've pretty well upholstered the subject. Be sure and search uh, iTunes as well as the Google Play Store. And uh, you'll search at Swordplay. You'll find all the podcasts there. And you can download them to your particular device. Leave a review. That'll help us get the word out about this podcast. All right. And if you have any questions, send those to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, feel free to repost the episodes and the links uh, to your social media page, Facebook. Help us get the word out. And thanks again for tuning into another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.